Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast, podcast. Sorry for this delay, um, it's all been a bit logisticky this time. Anyway, this is the first in a series of Jewel Box episodes. It's taken me a fair while to get my head around the Jewel Box. It was a huge drop of songs, versions of songs and facts about songs. It was very welcome. Don't get me wrong, but it was also pretty overwhelming with songs being out of sequence in some cases and all of the different strands of Elton and Bernie's writing being interwoven together. Things are even more confusing on Spotify and YouTube Music, where the order of the songs seems to be affected by whether or not they were released in the first batch or in one of the later drops. But still, if this podcast didn't make an attempt to make some sense of it all, then something would be very amiss. So here we are. In an attempt to make the rarities on the jewel box a little bit more digestible, I've gone ahead and served them out into six short playlists, with one episode introducing each playlist. It's a jewel box tapas, if you will. The episodes will be seasoned with some of my thoughts about the songs, with a smattering of biography here and there, and interviews as well. And also in the first two episodes, I'm going to be using portions of an interview that I've done recently with Ray Williams, who was Elton and Bernie's matchmaker and Elton's first manager, among many other things. And there's going to be a much more extensive interview with Ray coming up in the next few weeks as well. So the playlists, they cover all of the rarities on the jewel box up to April 1969, apart from the two by Bluesology and the two by the Bread and Beer Band. They're available in three flavours, depending on your streaming service. I've made them for Spotify and Apple Music. They're the vanilla ones. And also for YouTube Music, which is the spicy one, because it's got alternate versions of a few of the songs in there, which I've taken from YouTube proper. And I've made some Spotify-style graphics for each playlist that you can have a look at. It's got the dates and the writers listed for all of the songs. When it comes to dating the songs, I've used the information that came with the jewel box, but I've added in some of Mark Lewison's research for Philip Norman's biography, including some extra dates that he uncovered but which weren't published in that book. And this extra info has cleared up a lot of unanswered questions, and it means that songs like Skyline Pigeon and the title turn for Rebecca can now be placed in their correct context. Each of the playlists is a chapter in the story, but it's not completely chronological. There's some overlap between some of them. That's because each one follows a different theme. For example, chapter three is mostly about the songs that Elton and Bernie wanted to be writing during late 67 and early 68. And chapter four is mostly about the songs they didn't want to be writing during the same period. That means that chapter three is effectively the bonus disc for Regimental Sergeant Zippo, which excitingly is going to see the light of day on Record Store Day this year. 53 years on and this music is finally going to have its moment. It was confusing that the jewel box had a mostly Zippo-shaped hole in it. Lots of people, like me, were hoping for an upgrade on those whooshy yellow dog transfers and for some key tracks we didn't get that 
Now that we know about the Zippo release, things are making a bit more sense. It's not the final piece in the jigsaw. The collecting and researching game is not up yet, not by any means. But by putting the jewel box and Zippo together, we will end up with a pretty complete soundtrack of Elton and Bernie's climb up the greasy pole. So this is chapter one, which I've called Bernie's Letter. We start, though, with Elton from a BBC interview conducted in the summer of 1973, talking about his reasons for wanting out from bluesology. I really couldn't take travelling anymore and I didn't particularly like playing cabaret. I was getting very stagnant because I wasn't the most brilliant organ player anyway. And I also never got the chance to sing. So whilst I was still in the band, I thought I'd look round for something else. And it was at the time Liberty Records left EMI uh, and, and went on their own to Albemarle Street and they put an advertisement in the New Musical Express for talent and songwriters. I always wanted to see that advertisement again. And uh, I wrote in and I, I was asked to go and see a guy called Ray Williams. That advert ran in the NME on the 19th of June 1967. There'll be loads about that advert and the response that Ray got to it in the upcoming interview episode with him. He got some very interesting responses, though, including the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, Jeff Lynn's The Idol Race, Family, and Mike Batt. Here's Ray talking to me about Elton's audition, which took place nine days later on the 28th of June at his office on Albemarle Street in Mayfair. When I opened this letter, and it came from Reg, as he was then known, mm. he talked about he was in the band Bluesology. I just remember seeing Bluesology at the Marquee and places like that. He was always a very good keyboard player, and he did the other vocals. He'd written that he wanted to sing more, and uh, Long John Baldry wouldn't let him sing very much. And uh, he was thinking of starting a career, and he had a name, uh, which he explained. Did he mention that in the letter then? No, he mentioned it to me. When he came in the office, you know, we, we, we sat down and, you know, he was a forlorn-looking guy, you know, and he obviously he did not look like a rock star at all. No. But he was a great keyboard player. I felt sort of simpatico with him as a person. He was nice, you know. I wanted to help him. I got him to play some songs in my office. Was he there long? It was a good hour. Mm. You know, he got up and he sang. I remember him joking. You know, he came up with a couple of songs. I said, no, we don't do that. And then we did uh, He'll Have to Go, you know, the Jim Reeves song. Mm. It was a great song that he performed really well. It was apparent to you that that was a special voice. There was something, absolutely. Yeah, there was just something there that I thought, I've got to help this guy a little further. So Ray decided to book a session for Elton to record a demo acetate, and that happened a few days later over at Regent Sound, which was Lord Baring's studio on Denmark Street. Ray approached Liberty label boss Bob Reisdorf and their publisher Alan Keane for the cash, and £15 in hand, he went and he booked a three-hour session. They recorded three tracks one of them definitely being the rather anachronous He'll Have to Go. Another Jim Reeves song has also been mentioned, I Love You Because, but Ray couldn't confirm this for me. And the third song is anyone's guess. Maybe it will come out one day when Ray writes his memoirs and goes through all of his notes, which he is in the process of doing. As for the acetate itself, 
Well, Ray says that he gave it to Alan Keane to make a decision on, and when he came back to ask for it, Alan said it had been destroyed. What a shame. So anyway, what we definitely do know is that the demo session took place a couple of days after the audition, and it took place at Regent Sound. The odd thing is, Caleb recalls engineering that session. It's possible that this story has been compressed and that it's another later session that took place at DJM Studios that he's remembering. Maybe he worked at Regent Sound for a while. Anyway, this is what Caleb said about his reunion with Elton in Keith Haywood's book, Tim Pan Alley, The Rise of Elton John. Reunion, because as we know, they'd been fairly close during Reg's Mills music days before he'd thrown it all in to tour with Bluesology. This is what Caleb said. I couldn't quite place him. If he was who I thought he was, then he had certainly lost some weight and grown his hair a lot longer than when I knew him. I was setting up the mics as he was going to play the piano and sing, and all the time I'm looking at this guy, and he's looking at me and then looking away. I think we both recognised each other, but didn't want to say anything. I could tell that he was thinking, I know this guy, he was the one that laughed at me when I joined Bluesology. I recorded his demo, and that was when our music relationship really first started. When he'd finished, I remember, we laughed a lot and agreed that the piano playing was nice and the songs were okay, but his voice sounded like Sandy Shaw. It was so high, but it was a good start. We made quite a few demo records, one of which was He'll Have to Go, which Williams had cut onto an acetate and took back with him to Liberty. Liberty manager Bob Reisdorf agreed with Ray that Elton had a great recording voice, but he found nothing commercial about Elton's look or his repertoire. Ray really did see something, though. He had enough belief to introduce Elton to two writers that he'd set up a publishing group with, Kirk Duncan and Nicky James. In the meantime, Ray had received a letter from Lincolnshire. Here he is again, talking to me about that. Bernie had written to me, answering the same ad. You know, there was a whole bunch of these lyrics. You know, it looked uh, pretty cool. I didn't quite understand a lot of the meaning behind it. They were a little bit out there, mm-hmm. but there was something uh, interesting about them. And I wrote back to Bernie. Bernie's letter was very much along the lines of, you know, I think of myself essentially as a poet, but I feel that my lyrics could be set to music. I have no idea who to go to. Can you help me? And I wrote back to him and said, well, I like your lyrics. Why don't you come down and see me? And if you come down to London, I'll, I'll be happy to meet you. And then as we were going along with Nicky and Kirk, those lyrics came in and I thought, hang on, this guy doesn't write music. Elton can't write lyrics. Let me give these lyrics to Elton. And that's when it started. Do you remember where you were when you gave Elton Bernie's lyrics? It would have been in my office. And in the film, you see a, a random envelope. That's bullshit. Yeah. In the me book as well, it's presented in the same manner, essentially at random. I read that in the book. And, and so that's why I go out of my way to actually undo that. You know, Elton had a lot of stuff to remember. Oh, yeah. So he has to simplify his 
story because he has a massive story. Mm. And it was simpler to say that. I mean, back in the day, one was referred to, and this guy threw me some lyrics. Yeah. So one of the great things that has happened is that Elton has, certainly since Rocket Man, and, and a couple of times before, has actually set the record straight, which makes it nice for me, actually, yeah. because, you know, it did happen that I put them together and I did discover him and I did do a lot of stuff, which was swept under the carpet for a very long time because there were other people involved and they weren't that interested. The letter sat on Bernie's mantelpiece for a while. Elton had already been introduced to Nicky and Kirk by the time Ray received it. And he certainly didn't hand it over to Elton at the first meeting or their audition or anything like that. It's totally different to what happened in Rocket Man and Me. But even without this like crushing of the timeline, the story is still pretty romantic because within that letter, there was somehow enough fuel to get the entire Elton John Bernie Torpin starship off the ground. As Elton says in Me... There was just a magic that happened when I saw Bernie's lyrics, which made me want to write music. It happened from the moment I first opened the envelope on the tube train home from Baker Street, and it's been happening ever since. This is Bernie from that same interview as Elton back in 1973, talking about his early writing and the letter that he sent to Mr. Williams. My best subject at school was English literature, which was about the only thing I shone in and showed any promise in. And I used to write fairly good essays and sort of, you know, poetry and things like that. And uh, when I left school, I more or less just forgot it and and didn't even realise that I could do it. And um, after sort of failing miserably in, in various jobs, after sort of another two years, I decided that uh, if I was going to do anything, it was time I did it and realised that I did have some form of capability in writing. So um, I tried that and uh, that was when I was sort of bludgeoned by people around me to not just write but to sort of get it sort of across to other people. And that was more or less when I came in contact with our friend. He was the first contact I ever made up here. The first things I did... I, I sent I sent to London, and then they were in turn shown to him. Bernie said in an interview with Billboard magazine in October 1997, which was marking the 30th anniversary of his writing partnership with Elton, that he still had the letter that he'd sent to Ray, so he must have taken it back from Elton at some point. And I wonder if he still got it. Bernie was his own archivist and thanks to his auction a few years back, we're able to take a pretty good stab at working out what was actually included in that first set of lyrics. And that's what this chapter is all about. When you study the lyric sheets, you can see some similarities in the first set. All of the early lyrics are typed, but it seems that in the very first batch, Bernie didn't think to leave any gaps between the lines. For some of the later songs, Bernie left space for Elton to write the chords into, although Elton quickly stopped making use of that space. Presumably, he was just demoing the song straight away, and he was also getting better at remembering them. Using this logic, then, taking a look at the lyrics that Bernie auctioned, as well as the lyrics that are visible in the Captain Fantastic montage, as well as referring to a list of songs that Elton wrote 
on the back of the lyric sheet for Silas J. Hughes, and also the copyright dates from Mark Lewison, um, my best guess is that the first batch of lyrics included the following. Scarecrow, A Dandelion Dies in the Wind, Slow Fade to Blue, Mr. Lightning Striker Man, One Time, Sometime or Never, Watching the Planes Go By, Velvet Fountain, The Year of the Teddy Bear, and Silas J. Hughes, which we haven't actually heard. Then there are two other songs that we can see on Elton's list. They're called 21 and Alka-Seltzer Rainbow. It's possible that some of these may have come later, either by correspondence or after Bernie joined Elton in London. And you can also add to that list some of the lyric sheets that are visible in the Captain Fantastic montage. SOS looks very likely indeed to me. And there's also Snakes and Ladders and Blue Bottle Blues. You have to realise this was 1967, 68, and everybody was trying to get in the Loose in the Sky with Diamonds bandwagon. And so I was writing things like um, Marshmallow Melodies in My Mind and, and The Sky is Bleeding Rainbow Tears and uh, Colour Slide City and things like this. And they just went on and on and on with these awful sort of abstract words. But, uh, I mean, when you look back on them now, they're just positively dreadful. I mean, yeah, awful. Perhaps then Colour Slide City is another one that we have to add to the list. Bernie's memory is not the best source to be going with, though. In that Billboard interview that I mentioned, he recalled some of the titles of the lyrics from that first folio, including Coffee-Coloured Lady, whatever that is. One other title that he cringed to remember from the first set in the interview that went into the liner notes to be continued was Swan Queen of the Laughing Lake. Mirrors of My Mind and Lemonade Lake are another couple of titles that we've heard that are likely to be very early if they exist at all. Kirk Duncan was interviewed for Keith Hayward's book talking about the early demos. He said this, he said, Ray Williams did all of the studio work with the writers. Reg joined in 1967. I was in on the demos with him from the start, with Caleb as the engineer. Scarecrow was the first thing we did with Reg. My memory of that time was that Elton took himself very seriously when he was in the studio, as we all did, but the amazing thing was he never took more than a maximum of three takes per song having worked on it himself for a while before coming into the studio. We could tell from the moment we started working with him that he was something special, but he didn't have the image, he really didn't. We thought that he would never be a big star because of how he looked, but we did feel that he was a good prospect to sign up to Gralto and then to Niraki. So, picture the scene. It's Thursday the 10th of August 1967, late summer of love, all you need is love, and San Francisco, where some flowers in your hair are riding high in the charts, and Elton, Ray, Kirk, and Caleb, maybe Nicky James too, are up in the first floor demo studio at Dick James Music, 7175 New Oxford Street, casually bringing the first Elton John, Bernie Taupin recording into the world. 
smiling when I'm flying in the air. But you're too hard to frighten me. Pretend you didn't see me. Pretend you didn't need me. Pretend you didn't This song was so important to Bernie that he didn't put the lyric sheet for it up for auction. He didn't even show that much of it in the Captain Fantastic montage. He said to Rolling Stone at the time of the auction that Scarecrow was really important to me, much more to me than any of the big hits. And Bernie only delivered the original lyric sheet in time for it to be reproduced with the release of the rarities on vinyl rather than with the jewel box itself. It's quite tatty compared with the other lyrics that we've seen. It looks like it's been handled a fair amount over the years. This is the secret song at the heart of Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. We've got to hear ever longer snippets of it over the years until now, almost 54 years on, when we finally have all 3 minutes 12 seconds of it. Bernie's lyric is a strong one and it sets the stage for some of the ideas that he would return to time and time again in the early years. For me, Bernie is using the image of the scarecrow, bear with me on this, as a kind of totem of rural living. The scarecrow is the sacred forgotten of yesterday's problems. The scarecrow's attention is fixed on our table. In other words, He is toiling away to make our dinner. He's surrounded by the beauty of the natural world, the second flowering lilac, but he's not able to grasp it. As a scarecrow, he can't even see it. With the second verse, your wooden construction was meant for infliction. It actually sounds like Bernie is drawing parallels between the scarecrow and Christ, both of them on their respective crosses, absorbing the sins of others, penetrating pain. It's as if the purity and the simplicity of the lives of the country folk are somehow balancing out all of the decadence of city life, the moths round a light bulb. I'm probably going too far with this. Pretend you didn't see me, pretend you didn't need me could well be a message from country folk to city dwellers who are living a life so far removed from the one that Bernie knew. The song ends with, will you still be there tomorrow, with a sense of apprehension about how much longer the natural balance can be maintained. The perspective jumps around in a confusing manner and there are some severely overwritten lines here. The scarecrow being too high to frighten the crow. Don't know what that means. It's probably some kind of drug reference. And it's not possible to extract much meaning from nature's young raincoat or your brain is still bleeding. But all of this adds to the charm. It's an innocent, immature lyric, 
just as you would expect, but there are some sparks of brilliance here. And as I say, it sets the tone for the city versus countryside themes that would define Bernie's writing in the early years. Melodically, this is recognisably Elton, but it's not his strongest work in this era for me. He does a little bit of word painting. He sings, you're too low, uncharacteristically low for him, and he sings the word high, up high. But the problem is that the sections generally sound very similar to one another, and there's not much to mark out the borders in the song. Even though you've got the Beach Boysy vocal overdubs there trying to shape out a hook. Elton's also not all that fantastic at adapting to the uneven length of the syllables in Bernie's lines here, and this is something he'd learn to do quite automatically over the next few years. It's not really about the lyric or the song, though, it's about the artifact. That's what meant so much to Elton and Bernie. In that to be continued interview, This is what Bernie had to say. In those days, when you made demos, you made the old acetates, and I remember getting a copy of it and running home to my aunt's house and being so proud and playing it. Elton continued, It went around. It was a record, and it was our song. Growing up with records like he and I did, just to see a record going around on a turntable was a big buzz, And actually, your first song going around on an acetate, Scarecrow, with E. John and B. Torpin. That's amazing, so exciting. I'm sure the Bluesology singles meant a lot to Elton as well, spinning on his turntable, but to be able to share the excitement with someone he loved must have made it all the more special for Elton. All of this seems to suggest to me that Bernie was already in London by the 10th of August or not long afterwards. The acetate that he played to his aunt is pretty badly cut. It's got crackle all over it, but I'm sure that didn't dampen their excitement. Scarecrow imagery would return a few times for Bernie over the years, indirectly on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, self-referentially on curtains, of course, and very viscerally on American Triangle. The crow itself turns up on heels of the wind, but that's a story for another episode. Bernie even came to describe himself as the scarecrow. In the interview with Billboard, he says this about arriving in London and meeting Elton. Just the fact that he lived in London and played in a sort of professional rock and roll band was enough for me to think that he was really cool especially to me, I just turned up on the doorstep looking like the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz and I probably felt like it too. The Wizard of Oz was also apparently the first film that Bernie remembers watching. That could be apocryphal. I don't have a source for it. Anyway, I digress. Here's Elton talking about their meeting, which more than likely took place, as I say, at some point in August 1967. And suddenly, Bernie appeared one day and said, oh, I'm the man who writes, sitting in the studio, and he said, I'm the, I'm the man who writes the lyrics, and was extremely shy, and so was I. And we just sort of went and had a cup of coffee together in the corner in, uh, in Charing Cross Road. And we said, shall we write together? It was very romantic at the time. <laughs> uh, and we said, yes. Yeah. So that's how I really got established with him. And then he was then moved down to London. He moved into with his auntie in Putney. I said, I know more about his history than he does, probably. In To Be Continued, Elton says... I remember the suitcase, the original cardboard suitcase. 
It doesn't even constitute hand luggage these days. On to track two then. This is the demo version of A Dandelion Dies in the Wind. Incidentally, the way that vocal starts in a staggered way against the piano suggests to me that the vocal was recorded as an overdub anyway. See my eyes and see my arms The say you're gone It was just a game of let's pretend And I was through the ways that lend me tears Purple clouds, golden rain Yesterday has gone And a dandelion dies in the wind If you're quick This is a really special song for me. I remember being very new to Elton and watching the Two Rooms documentary when that came out and they were discussing the early days and then the chorus of this song, the full band version, came to the surface momentarily between the sound bites. I was utterly struck by the beauty of this music, music that I had no clue how to own. And that moment started me off on the hunt. And many years later, I can say that the journey to find the music and to find out about it has been a source of a great deal of joy for me. I wonder, will that joy still be there tomorrow for those fans who come to study Elton's rarities in a post-Jewel Box world? I know the more people that get to hear this music, the better, but will they be treasuring it in the way that we have over the decades when it's experienced as a waterfall of song titles as part of a 148-song-long contextless track list? Does it matter if they experience it differently? Probably not. I know this is like an old man yells at wind kind of situation. I do think that a lot has been lost with the immediacy of music streaming though. I guess that's why it's so good that we've got this physical Zippo album coming out. I digress. Back to A Dandelion Dies in the Wind. It had a special job on that Zippo album. It opened side two with its swirling organ and its multi-layered vocals. But a lot of what makes the song special isn't really here in the piano demo, which feels very rushed and is lacking in nuance. It's a simple idea from Bernie, wandering around on the beach, somewhere secluded, south of Grimsby most like, being mocked by seagulls, lamenting the end of a relationship that never really got started, a game of let's pretend. He sees the seeds of a dandelion getting caught in the sea breeze and he leaves us to connect that image with his state of mind. Purple clouds, golden rain might be own brand Lennon, but if you're quick enough to rise with the sleep still in your eyes is pure Bernie. This is another song alongside Scarecrow and Angel Tree that Bernie referenced directly in his lyrics for Curtains. 
when he was interviewed for the to-be-continued sleeve notes, he actually misquoted the lyrics for Dandelion and identified them as the lyrics to Scarecrow. Shows that we clearly obsess over this stuff a lot more than they do. As I said, that chorus is something special, but I don't feel the rest of the song quite measures up to it. The lyrics often get crushed to fit, and the middle eight doesn't add an awful lot to the song. It's very Beatlesque in its final form at least, but it's a bit over-serious, and it crosses over into pastiche at times. It sounds like I hate it. I really don't. It's a strong song, and Elton and Bernie are so young finding their way. Moving on, we go from a Bernie's letter track that made it onto Zippo to one that made it onto Empty Sky, well, sort of. This is Slow Fade to Blue, or A Slow Fade to Blue, as it says on Bernie's lyric sheet. She stands in shadows Shadows I've walked into Your skin's like the velvet Simple reflection of you And you know it's true This track, along with One Time, Sometime or Never, was unfortunately placed out of sequence on the jewel box. Here, we have Caleb on acoustic alongside Elton on piano. So this has to be one of Elton and Caleb's first recorded outings together. Caleb throws everything at this song, playing in all sorts of styles. That variety of styles is explained on the lyric sheet. Elton has annotated the different sections, describing how they're going to be tackled. The first says bass, and it is indeed very bottom-heavy in the arrangement. The next section just says chorus, then it says heavy guitar for the next two sections. And although it's just an acoustic, they do both go for it there, playing with real attack. After this, it says Simon and Garfunkel, and this is the lightest, folkiest section of the song. For the final verse, it says guitar harpsichord, which probably just refers to the way Caleb is playing the guitar up in the upper register. This song's got a mighty odd structure. It goes verse, chorus, verse, then a middle eight sort of thing, hair as black as ravens, that bit. Then another chorus, then a completely different section, the folky bit, followed by a final verse and then ending with the refrain from the chorus repeated. And it was just the chorus that found its way onto Empty Sky. It was remodeled as the chorus of Gulliver. And it is, of course, a great little melody. That's why they used it again. But the verse is strong as well. And they link together here in a really satisfying manner with a modulation between them. But the real highlight of the song for me, though, is that second middle eighth thing where it rises from a G up to a B minor, 
and Elton sings this plaintive little folk melody. Running at 4 minutes 57 seconds, this is a long song compared with the others that they were writing at the time. So long, in fact, that it had to be split across the two sides of its acetate, according to Peter Thomas, which means that the folky section doubly feels like the beginning of a second movement. This is one of my favourites on the Jewel Box. It's a great addition to the catalogue. Really ambitious, really serious piece of music, although again, maybe a little over serious. What I love about it is Elton's willingness to step away from the basic verse-chorus-verse structure, even if it makes the song less immediate. He didn't do it all that often. First episode at High Enton and Indian Sunset are two key examples of songs where he just lets the lyrics take the reins and he doesn't strike lines out just because he couldn't make them fit into a more conventional structure. It's very exciting to find another very early song where he was trying this approach out. It's not that he didn't do any editing at all, though. A whole final verse has been crossed out by Elton and a few words have been changed here and there. It's a story of someone being tormented by memories of a love that has gone away, possibly passed away. There are a few strong lines here. I really like Saviour of Satan got a hold on me, particularly the way Elton delivers it. But lyrically, it's a bit woe is me. It's got more than a whiff of teenage bedroom to it. All in all, though, it's a corker. Next up, Mr. Lightning Striker Man. The turning cop is on my grass. The pleasure garden's full at last. There's little Annabelle Priestley with a dad and mum. Swings and hoops and roundabouts all in the sun. Everybody's happy doing as they please. Some are mentioned bad luck and I had to sneeze. Then he comes out. My best guess is that this lyric is drawn from Bernie's memories of family trips out to Tower Gardens, a pleasure garden in Skegness, which is the most popular seaside destination in Lincolnshire. Pleasure gardens have been a grand form of recreation in the UK for hundreds of years. They're a place where people could enjoy the simple pleasures of a stroll, a brass band, and maybe even an ice cream out in the bracing British 
breeze. And Bernie's lyric is a celebration of the British weather and the effects that it can have on people's mood. It's the sun has not got his hat on. One of those days when the weather is apparently in demonstration mode, switching from pleasant to horrendous and then back again in a matter of minutes. Bernie observes a family and then a young couple out promenading and then looks up to see the black clouds gather. It's Bernie at his most playful. Elton ran with the late Victorian vibe and he produced a music hall setting for it with a bit of a honky-tonk flavour. It's like he pulled it straight out of his Northwood Hills Hotel satchel of manuscripts. Elton has touched on the vaudeville several times. I think I'm going to kill myself. Big Dipper and Sweet Painted Lady are three that come to mind, but this is now the purest example of that in the Elton John songbook. It's not the kind of granny music that Paul McCartney was writing, or Ray Davies for that matter. It's a bit straight for that, but it's a load of fun. And the chorus, particularly the how does it feel one, is very satisfying. After Mr. Lightning Striker Man on my playlist is this, One Time, Sometime or Never, another September 67 song that was misplaced on the jewel box. This song was an exciting one for Elton. In the second Keith Haywood biography, Kirk Duncan recalls that Elton would have moments of complete madness in the studio. One afternoon, when we had recorded a really good song called One Time, Sometime or Never, and when we were listening to the playback, he got very excited about it and started running around the rooms of DJM saying he was going to be a star. He got that sort of madness from Caleb. He would do that sort of thing as well, even when he was walking down the high street going for a coffee. With its swirling organ, the little lightning strikes of electric guitar, it's easy to see how Elton might have got swept up in this whirling waltz. He puts in an exceptional vocal performance as well with some beautiful passing notes and flourishes. 
He sounds something like a folk troubadour here. My favourite type of vocal from this era of Elton is very reminiscent of some of the vocals from Empty Sky. I'm not really sure what genre of music this is. Maybe you could imagine Procol Harum coming out with something similar. And there are actually suggestions that this was being considered as a song for the Spencer Davis group to cover. I'd love to know if that's true, and if so, whether it ever got beyond the discussion stage. It's another long and oddly shaped song from Elton. It goes from the intro in the verse, which is a descending figure in F minor, into the short refrain, then the second verse, but it is evolved somewhat, ends in F major, and then the next thing you know, the song modulates heavily into A major for a kind of bridge, the so I sit in my mill at the top of a hill bit. Then it jerks back into the original key for the refrain. Then it retreats into another sort of bridge, which starts in C minor, the malt wine to make me feel high bit. Finally, back for a verse in F minor and the repeating refrain. It's pretty easy to lose track with this one. You need to listen to it a few times to get to grips with it. But we go on a walk through a musical landscape with Elton, through the blinding rain, taking shelter in a couple of outhouses along the way. And as such, it's a good parallel to the lyric, which takes us out from this storm of emotion into the mill, where the sails have stopped turning and time stands still. Bernie's character is stuck there, getting drunk and holding on to some very painful memories, asking himself rhetorically, what's wrong with living in the past? Structurally, Bernie's lyric was an unwieldy one for Elton, and that's why we've got all these different sections, but it's not without form. In fact, most of it is written in what's termed dactylic metre, which means that each foot goes stressed, unstressed, unstressed. Once it was bright and the moon shone each night. And Elton picked this out and wrote it as a waltz, which was all very smart and together of them. Moving on now to the strongest of all the songs that came out of Bernie's letter, Watching the Planes Go By. This starts with the original demo of the song, courtesy of Peter Thomas, which I've mixed into the version that came out on the jewel box. And you'll hear that there's a little bit of extra music and lyric here in the verse that didn't make it into the final version. Oh, I 
I look again and search in vain, just watching the planes go by. I'm out here and you're somewhere, somewhere out there, too far from me. And I want. Like it was when the summer was here Instead of just sitting here Watching the planes go This is one of the tracks that we can expect a different mix of on the Zippo release as there are horns and strings in the final version. I'm not quite sure how the track could get any more dense, it's already bursting at the seams with ideas. My favourite thing about this song is Dave Hines' jagged drum beat, which we hear in the intro, in the middle and at the end. He's staggering around just off the beat, giving the song a real shove. For me, these are probably the coolest drums on any Elton song, full stop. We've got D on bass and also backing vocals according to the description of the video that was posted on YouTube of the song. Of course it's Elton on piano, most likely organ, and it's Caleb playing electric and acoustic as well as doing the engineering and producing the track and it's quite something what he achieved here on the Studer 4 track. He shows his workings when we see the layers being built up. It's guitar first, great riff. Then the backing vocals and the piano come in. And finally, the drums and the bass. The guitar riff and the backing vocals make for a very Beatlesque sound. But the way the lead vocal is recorded, drenched in reverb along with the stinging acoustic guitar, gives it a wall of sound feel. It's no wonder that this was programmed as the final track of the album, and it's also no surprise that this is Caleb's favorite track from this era. It sounds immense. It's a strong melody from Elton over a very satisfying set of chords. I love this song. And it's been very rewarding for the fan that this is one of the songs that's finally been uncovered to us after 50 years. If you ask me, it's probably the best song from that era. And it's almost like it was planned that way. And it's sad for all of the fans that didn't get to see this day. It's another loss of love lyric from Bernie, similar to the last two that we've heard. He's wallowing by the billowing curtains while the world somehow carries on without him. But the imagery works really well this time. It's more direct and more powerful than Dandelion and Slow Fade and One Time, Sometime or Never. And we've got shades of future songs here as well. The aeroplane tail lights would end up being recalled in Daniel. And the whole thing seems to have basically been rewritten as Planes, which I'm pretty sure was part of the Captain Fantastic project. 
and it's also a bit like a nighttime version of Skyline Pigeon. Next on this playlist is Velvet Fountain, which we don't have a date for, we just know that it's a track from 1967. This is one of those flowers of your mind type lyrics, as Bernie would put it, heavily influenced by Sgt. Pepper, which came out in May 1967, and also by All You Need Is Love from July the same year. And there's also a possible influence from The Graduate in the second verse, the one that goes, Mrs. Jones, you can't stop me. Your wedding ring told me I can't love you anymore. But that wasn't in cinemas until December 67, so maybe not. It's a celebration of free love. Love as a velvet fountain for everyone to drop their coins into. Not quite sure what Bernie's getting at here, but whatever it is, it doesn't really work for me. Elton's take on it is to make something very similar to Scarecrow. The two songs sort of merge together in my head. And the only thing here that really stands out to me is the extremely odd way in which he pronounces the word floating. And there's another weird pronunciation in these early tracks as well, the way Elton says living in watching the planes, basically halfway between living and loving. She's out there living without thinking of me. I don't know what he means to do by that. He certainly hasn't repeated those strange pronunciations in later songs. As you can tell, I don't have a great deal in the way of positivity for this song, and the same applies, unfortunately, to the final track from this playlist, The Year of the Teddy Bear, which was registered in October 1967. Follow the world that's 
Bernie would come back to the theme of childhood many times in the early years. Regimental Sergeant Zippo, obviously, followed in a much more focused manner by Child and The Greatest Discovery. Then, for the bulk of his writing career, he was more interested in adolescent rebellion. But Peter's song has got the same spirit, and it's even there right up to the present day. Children's song from the wonderful Crazy Night Sessions is essentially Bernie telling us all how to keep the inner child alive. Don't grow too fast or close the door on once upon a time. Never locked, it's always there. You'll never need a key. Come on in and be a kid. You can always ask for me. Beyond noting that it's a precursor for Zippo, I don't have much else to say about this odd confection of toy-related images. One thing that's interesting is that Bernie's partially set it in London. Again, this possibly indicates that this lyric was written a little later than the original set of lyrics, after Bernie had come to London. It does look like the other lyrics that he posted to Ray, though. Elton put together a strident setting for it, a stomping march, which turns over to a chorus with a bit of a West Coast flavour. The chorus itself was used a second time as the middle eight for Who's Gonna Love You? They're both down as being registered for UK copyright in October 1967, so it's not clear which song cannibalised which, but my guess would be that it was Teddy Bear that was abandoned, as the piano part in Who's Gonna Love You is way more developed. So anyway, that's the first playlist finished. Hopefully you've enjoyed this focus on Bernie's first set of lyrics. Next up is a playlist that I'm still planning on calling Not So Brill Building, featuring the songs that Elton wrote solo in the first few months, as well as the two co-writes with Nicky James and Kirk Duncan. I can't leave this episode with the lingering taste of the teddy bear, though, so how about we get our claws into curtains to finish up? I've ditzied with this using the 5.1s. First, I've done that to highlight the backing vocals from Davy, Dee and Nigel. Nigel taking high notes, of course. Then, towards the end, I've highlighted the piano before exposing Elton's lumdy-dums right at the close. Enjoy and see you soon. I used to know this old scarecrow He was my son My joy and sorrow Cast along Between the furrows Of a field No longer sung
so 